Ward, I, I wore my Star Wars shirt just for you. Did you? Oh, you're killing me. You're killing me that he's off the show. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 82 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have... John Papa. Hi, everyone. Ward Bell. Hello, hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest. That's Shane Boyer. Hey, guys. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Uh, I'm Shane Boyer. I'm in uh, basically Orlando, uh, a little outside of Orlando, and um, been doing a little Angular 2 lately, uh, but generally, I live in the world of APIs and architecture and putting the whole solution together. So thanks for having me. All right. Now, John was explaining that you didn't have a lot of Angular 1 experience and you're getting into Angular 2. Is there more to it than that, John? Well, let's let's let use Shane's words, right? Let's have Shane explain kind of where you came from, from JavaScript, TypeScript, and um, before your Angular experience. And then we right, kind of explain talk about... Your, explain yourself, Shane. How why, you got into why, Angular? From why birth. are we listening? Why are we listening? From birth. No, before from that. <laughs> Family history. So my history is, you know, I started with TypeScript. I guess pretty much the day it came out or a couple of days it came out and um, there was a, a ton of naysayers. I stayed with it and they said, why do we need typing? Uh, I liked it because my background is, uh, is a .NET developer, but a .NET developer from a client side development, but also just the web world as a web developer. So I have a lot of JavaScript experience, a lot of just uh, client server experience. I've built a lot of APIs. I'm pretty, uh, versed in Node, uh, web APIs uh, from the .NET side. So I uh, spent a lot of time on the server side of it, not too much in Angular 1 or 1.x, other than being able to dig in and look at it just from a JavaScript side, understand how it puts together. So a high knowledge as to how it works and understanding the the MV star frameworks. Uh, I understand 
the other frameworks from a web perspective as far as knockout and things like that. So I have a good understanding of what it does, what it accomplishes and what it's used for, but not really got down into building a true application from soup to nuts. Um, so getting into what Angular 2 was offering and how it was coming out and obviously knowing the wave of the Angular 1 development, development community and how, how large it was knowing what we were using in, in my job and what was out in the community, uh, I figured, you know what, I better get into uh, seeing what this is about because Wave 2 is even going to be better. They're going to build upon what's already there. So I had better get my hands deep in what's going there, knowing they were building it with TypeScript. I've got that experience, so it should be easier for me to pick up uh, instead of trying to understand how everybody was building the, the first version of Angular. So Shane, was it, I'm curious, when you started making the decision to get into Angular 2 because of TypeScript, it sounds like you're saying that that's one of the driving reasons you started looking at Angular 2 because you had that TypeScript experience. Is that right? I would say it's that was part of the reason, uh, but knowing, just looking at the, I want to say I started in beta 40 something, right? And seeing some of the uh, examples that were coming out, the structure that was there was less verbose to me than what I had seen in the Angular 1 uh, examples and code I've been reading for a few years, it just seemed to make more sense. It seems like I didn't have to worry about where things went when I started to build the components and their directives. And there was less keywords and just some of the initial ideas around what was, you know, the keywords and things were being reduced. So kind of the what you needed to know to get into it was just much smaller. So I said, okay, I've got a space in my... My old brain, I'm an old guy when it comes to the development community. So if something goes in, something's got to leave. So I have a little bit of room. I can I can kind of grok this. So I think that was the attractive part. that They were reducing some of the, the things that you needed to know to get started. Can you give us some examples of uh, some of those aha moments for you? Yeah, I think just the initial parts of the wire up, like what do I need to get started? Just a basic hello world was all right, I need to do the bootstrap piece, right? So the bootstrap and the routing was much simpler for me. If I just looked at a simple component, I had my component, which is now a class, right? So I was like, all right, well, class, I've done, I've done .NET, I've done Java. It's typed, uh, so I can just kind of type and not have to think about the, do I have to do an iffy here or can I just do a simple function? I can just type a class, and that was very simple for me. Knowing TypeScript and the decorators and the DI, the, the dependency injection model was much easier from the sense of I just you know put the annotation of add injectable. Right. The hardest part for me was, you know, crap, I forgot to put the ellipsis on the end of it. So that was a struggle, but having to remember that. And then just being declarative about setting up the, the other pieces of defining my template with its simple, you know, templates colon. Great styles. You know, set my styles there. Not trying to mash all that in, you know, four or five, seven different files and trying to put it all together programmatically somewhere else with, you know, some other function of either using Wiredep or Gulp or something like that to try and put it all together and make it work. Uh, I think that was the, the easy part to just see one file. I could put it all there in one file and then have the option of breaking it out if I needed to later if it got bigger. So it, it seems like, you know, coming from uh, kind of a casual acquaintance with Angular 1, I think a lot of people coming in Angular 2 are coming from Angular 1. Were there things you think people sort of assumed you already knew coming into Angular 2 that you didn't have as a background or a deep background in that may have, you know, made it a little harder to pick up? You know, it's interesting is that I think it's easier for it was easy for me to just I've had to make the language switch many times over my career 
going from, you know, JavaScript or ES3, you know, to ES5 or going from, you know, VB, straight, straight old school VB to a .NET or to a Java. And I've always taken a direction of just kind of forget what you know before I move on to the next thing. And I know for a lot of people, that's hard. They go, well, we used to do this. And that's almost a benefit going to Angular 2 is I don't have a deep-seated knowledge of Angular 1, right? This And uh, I see a lot of the videos, presentations, they say, well, here's a here's a grid. So in Angular 1, this is how we did directives. In Angular 2, this is how we, we're going to do it. And you only need to, we use the at directive when you don't have a template and we use at component when we do, you know. So there's these comparisons that I see a lot of Angular 1 developers, they're trying to understand like, this is how I used to do it. How do I do it now? Me as a new developer, and I think as a lot of new Angular developers will come into this saying, I'm coming from React or I've never done Angular before, they do have a benefit of not having that kind of preconceived notion of how to do it before coming in. They say, oh, this is just how I do it. So it's almost like a new technology for them or a new framework for them coming in. So I think I benefit from that. You know, I think that's interesting. I was at a code camp this last weekend in South Florida, and I did a back-to-back sessions on Angular 2 to get people started. And it was very, very popular, but well, that wasn't what was really interesting to me. It was half the people, when I asked in the beginning, how many of you here have done Angular 1? Less than half of them actually raised their hands. And I was, and I actually asked again, like, are we serious? Is that all there really is? And there were that many new people in the room who had never done Angular 1 before who were interested in learning about Angular 2. And especially on the show, I, I've got to think most, to my best recollection, we have mostly been talking about how do you get into Angular 2 if you came from Angular 1. But it's, I think it's interesting to hear from somebody who hasn't done as much Angular 1 and uh, to see kind of what's that experience like. Yeah, I think that, that that's a big attraction, quite honestly, as almost the desktop application developers are looking for what's the next job, what's the next skill that I'm, I want to jump to. Uh, is it mobile? Uh, is it the web? And if they do go to the web, a lot of desktop application developers uh, are looking for a uh, language or framework because that's what they're used to. Um, and if you're a Java developer or a C-sharp developer, you're used to typing. So immediately, I think you're attracted to TypeScript. And if you're looking for a framework that offers that, um, I know obviously Aurelia is out there that they, they support uh, the TypeScript language to build their framework, Angular 2 is there. That's truly one of the probably 50%, if not larger, the reason that I, I gravitated to Angular 2. It's like, well, I can just type it. I don't have to think, you know, am I doing it correctly? I might have to worry about syntax. If I'm past, if I'm using an input, uh, I know I can type the input and expect that, you know, a person is a person when it comes in and it's going to tell me, you know, give me the, hey, stupid, you didn't, this is not a person coming in. And if I don't want to type it, I don't have to, but I can still stay in that, that nice language and give me those features. And the tooling has gotten so much better because of things like that. I think that's the big attraction to a transitioning developer from a typed language or from a desktop application development to a, a web development. So speaking of being a desktop-oriented developer, so how does Angular 2's approach align with your thinking about how you would build such applications? Where does it surprise you? Where does it disappoint you? Where does it encourage you? I think from the MVSTAR frameworks, MVVM frameworks, and talking just from a Windows development uh, standpoint, I think there's some similarities there. Um, we have 
uh, in Angular 2, you've got this observable pattern. I think there's a lot of reactive extension developers out there in the Windows world that they're used to that type of model from a development. So that's a, a parallel kind of development stream. You've got the pub-sub models. Um, again, those are, again, parallels for them to, come, to kind of come over. So I think that's something that's easy for them to kind of grok as they're coming over. I think where the questions come in is where are, do we make the, the decision points of how do I get to a printer? How do I get to a, a scanner and these external devices? And I think that's when these desktop developers are saying, Oh, I have to put it inside of uh, Electron or I have to, I have to go with the desktop thing. And how do I do that? You know, using an, an Angular 2 framework per se. So I think that's still a decision point for them to make for those type of decisions. Yeah, there is something there at that boundary. That's just the difference between sort of writing a desktop app and, and encountering a spa. Like, how do I make my spa talk, my single page application, JavaScript application talk to the environment? And it's interesting that you brought up Electron because I've seen some some action on that front. Have you played with any of the Angular 2 Electron um, combinations? I haven't, but I've I've read a lot of you know, when I say a lot, probably less than a dozen articles around it. And I say, this is really great. The deployment story is great because it gives you cross-platform. I know a number of us uh, use the Visual Studio Code, and that's obviously all developed in TypeScript and in Electron. So I think that's a great story. But again, what is the decision point where the web isn't good enough, uh, where Angular 2 is not good enough? And I think it comes around, if I have to hook up something that's not a normal device, if it's not a microphone, if it's not a keyboard or a keyboard wedge, you know, like a, a card reader uh, or something like that, a scanner, how do we interface with those from Electron? I don't know if that stuff exists, right? So I don't know what the story is, but I think that might be the decision point where um, they say, this is not good enough, you know, and I know PhoneGap has solved that, some of those things with these native shims can we get Angular 2 to talk to these native shims, you know, via TypeScript? And do we really want to make that leap for us and say that that's good enough? You know, so I think, um, you know, that would be a good story to see if we could do that with an Electron. And in that point, it's like, do we really need desktop apps other than, you know, iTunes? So, Shane, when you got started doing Angular 2, we actually, me and you and Ward, we were all at the Orlando Hack Night for Angular 2, uh, I think it was October, November last year. Yeah. At that point, was that your first? experience with Angular 2? And if so, kind of how did that go for you? Uh, other than maybe a couple of days or a week or so before that, just walking through whatever documentation existed. I want to say that uh, it's interesting. I think there was three releases that week before we went to that, that hack night. Yes, like there 42, were. <laughs> 42, 43, 44, something like that. So I think HTTP had just was coming out, we, there is, HTTP is like a third of what it used to take to do there. So, you know, getting started from that point for me, the language was easy again, cause it was TypeScript and it was interesting to, to walk around the hack night and see who was having the struggles with what. A lot of it is around how to get my environment set up with typings. How do I do HTTP calls? Um, how do I get it to talk? How do I, where do I put my templates? You know, do I kind of put my templates in? the template definition? Can I put in my HTML external? So there was a lot of, you know, that type of setup in the tooling. And obviously that's much more mature now. It's been almost six months later. Uh, for me, it was, hey, how do I get, I have my code all working. Now I want it to look pretty, 
right? How do I get material design to work in this? And it was, oh, that's not there yet. And I think we had somebody from the material design team or somebody from the Angular team there with us. But it was, how do I make it pretty now? How do I get my routing to work? So I think routing was still being worked. So understanding, like, what's the next thing? I was watching the webcast um, last week, and there's this whole story around forms. You know, so I haven't even looked into forms. So it's like, what don't I know about Angular 2 and the framework that's available? So I think it's the unknowns that we don't know. So, you know, making it pretty, how do I get the CSS? And there's a story about how do I get it onto my server so I can show somebody what I built? I think those are the struggles that I was having at that point was how do I push it to the cloud? How do I push it to my hosting so I can show somebody instead of just running it locally? And I know that one night, the challenge about add injectable and I'm forgetting the parentheses at the end of that thing. And that threw me for a loop. <laughs> I know Ward sat with me for about 10 minutes and we both went you know, blurry trying to find that. Who's looking for parentheses, you know? Ward's like, take this out, take this out, take this out, take this out. Because, okay, now we just have a component. <laughs> so, so, Something's um, got to be different now. And you know what? That what That's what led me to put it in a big yellow box in, in the documentation, that experience. Just something simple like that that can bite you. No, I think so. this is this is good because that's where that hack night, I think Ward and I benefited more than everybody was there, which is honestly, I got so much out of that. Just watching everybody, the aha light bulb moments from people on things that they thought really worked well and that they enjoyed, which was the overall theme. But there were also those pain moments that you pointed out, like the injectable and forgetting the parentheses or, you know, how do I do routing or how does an observable work with HTTP? Those kind of questions, I think they, uh, I know they've influenced kind of how I've started teaching Angular. And as Ward has mentioned, I bet you Ward, has that kind of influenced the docs in any way? Or Every time I see somebody learning this thing, it, it influences the docs. I have another, oh, moment where I, I just wonder about it. And, and you know what? Any of these frameworks have those, those moments, too. You hit these strange walls where the feedback that you're getting is not helping you figure it out. There was n The problem with the missing parentheses was you'd get some mystery message back that didn't seem to relate to anything. And uh, that's what leads you to put these things in the docs. You know, I find that, Ward, it's funny you mentioned that strange messaging. I find that to be, today, my biggest struggle. And it's funny that, in my head, I have a list of strange messages for Angular 2 index <laughs> that if I get this message, I know the five things to go look for. And the message is nothing. It means nothing for what the error actually is. You know, it could be like, um, I don't know, I forgot to, I misspelled the component name wrong somewhere, but they, the message is, is completely, you know, no provider found could be the name of the, of the error, but I misspelled, you know, person component or something like that. And you know what? We take it for granted. You know, we say, oh, that damn Angular 2. How could they do that? We take it yeah. for granted that we have an exactly the same inventory in every other language that we're in. And we don't even think twice about it. We see that message and our brains just immediately connect to the solution. We know exactly what went wrong. And we think our language, you know, that old environment is just great because we know all those things. And we expect that everybody else is not going to have these, these problems. And it's just not true. Uh, so this is, this is part of the pain of learning any technology. Yeah, I find that going back to the hack night, the biggest challenge, and I know that this has gotten a lot better, is around the tooling and getting just set up. It was, you know, how do I get X IDE or editor set up for Angular 2? And, you know, where do I have to have my typings folder 
or my typings, you know, TS config file. And I think that that story has gotten a lot better uh, over the last four or five months. And I think if that continues to improve where I can just fire up VS code or Atom or brackets or, you know, visual studio or eclipse help you, you know, whatever those, <laughs> you know, the big fat editors are. And I, and I, I'll group visual studio and things like eclipse together because there are big heavy editors, but there are developers who love that environment. If they just say file, new project, angular to, you know, spot app, if that can go away, because developers will blame that development experience on Angular 2. Oh, Angular 2 stinks because X. It's not because of Angular 2. It's because it just doesn't work well in those editors, right? Or those IDEs. I find that to be still a struggle. And it's probably true of React and Aurelia and who knows what else. If the tooling is, is in the way, it can be blamed on the frameworks. Yeah, because the things you're mentioning aren't Angular, right? There, the, you mentioned the TS config, you mentioned the typings, you mentioned the syntax stuff. That's what you're alluding to in, in some of the setup. It's not the Angular stuff; it's the things that we need for the tool, and even the editors. You know, some of these editors now, like WebStorm, I know if you just open it up and point it at an Angular two project, it's like, oh, I know what that is. So I think those things right. are improving. I don't think they're done improving, quite frankly. I know Ward and I recently had some internal yelling at each other's about things that we've struggled with lately with uh, uh, the tooling and how we still think it could get better. Not yelling at each other, but yelling with each other. <laughs> and there's things to go through that I think we, it's got it's just got to get better, quite frankly. And I think this is for any of these modern frameworks. But I'm hoping that people don't get discouraged by that experience, not just for Angular, but for React or Rail or any of these, because... To me, there's such a wonderful pot of gold at the end of that rainbow if you just get through that struggle in the beginning. And for people who start in six months from now, maybe there isn't that struggle at all, you know? Sure. I think the other part of the story, there's the setup, there's the development, and then there's the, I'll call it publish, right? I think the publish story is going to be the bigger, the biggest story of all three of those because we still don't know who's the winner. Is it JSPM? Is it Webpack? Is it... X tool that's still somebody's developing in their garage, right? How do we publish this thing? I'm going to pack it and I'm going to deploy it out and put it in my CI pipeline. What does that look like? And I spent many hours deep diving into a few of these to see, hey, I just want to type something into a command line and have it build and deploy my thing and gave up. So, And I think that's where I know We've had a few chats too, Shane. I think that's also where we were uh, looking for Angular CLI, which the Angular team's been working on uh, up in the public uh, GitHub repo. They're kind of hoping that's going to solve that problem for us. So that'd be a good thing. Right. So Shane, you have a lot of background in other technologies too. Uh, recently, you did a Pluralsight video with me on ASP.NET Core 1.0. Is that the new name for the darn thing? Yeah, it was K, then DNX. Then there was another name that came out and they gave up on that. And, oh, ASP.NET 5. Yeah, then ASP.NET Core. So, yeah, yeah, we just did that. That was fun. What is that? Can you, better, can you explain that for people that aren't .NET programmers? So, um, yeah, ASP.NET Core is the re-platform or rewrite of what we all know as ASP.NET. Um, so, if anybody who's done uh, kind of web development on the .NET platform, they're used to hearing, you know, web forms. Um, kind of server-side development, similar to something like PHP postback development, right? The rewrite of .NET or ASP.NET 
is now a completely cross-platform. So it will run on the metal, on Linux, on OS X. If uh, you want to uh, do development on, on a Mac, it'll run there. And of course, on Windows still. Uh, super light. It's very Node-esque from a sense of uh, middleware. Uh, being able to put that in there super fast from a performance standpoint. Um, there is a blog post that just came out. They're doing 1.15 million requests per second on the web servers. So it's super fast. You can grab it uh, if you just go up to the uh, get.asp.net and install it. It runs, again, on all those platforms. Super easy to develop uh, from some of the examples they have there. The docs site, the docs.asp.net, is under development right now. We've made some suggestions on how they can improve that. Uh, I even uh, sent over the, the Angular 2 docs as an example uh, as to how we could uh, improve some of the content. But I, I enjoy developing it from an API standpoint. I think that's the big strength there is from web API and, develop, uh, and developing on the server side and de- delivering that back. So I really enjoy developing uh, the APIs on that platform. So are you doing Angular 2 with ASP.NET Core or kind of what, what's your stack of choice these days? Yeah, that's my favorite thing. I did a, recently did a post where I did, I took the Tor Heroes demo and added, I made a change and used observables to hit a, an ASP.NET Core API uh, and then put that all inside of uh, Docker containers and uh, Nginx and uh, use that to, to make a full end-to-end app. Uh, even through some Redis in there in the back to store the, the content. All so right, you gotta, kinda... you gotta give us the link to that so that I can put it up there because that's just, that sounds so cool. It's called Legion of Heroes. <laughs> I'll put that <laughs> in your students. But yeah, that was fun. I think that's going to be, for me, I think on a go forward basis, the ASP.NET core stack right now is in RC1. They're doing a kind of a replatform on what they're calling the .NET CLI. But, uh, they're doing some some good work from a performance. The Stack Overflow team right now is kind of dog fooding some of this stuff uh, currently in their environments, and they're doing some super super great performance on on their platform. So, for those who don't know, Stack Overflow does run on .NET on Windows. So, from a performance standpoint, it does uh, does do the job. But for me, on a go forward basis, I think uh, I would certainly recommend Angular two. .NET Core in a server, and then choose your choose your backend from a, a database. I think they're all pretty good from that standpoint. Check me if I'm wrong on this, but haven't you also done some Node work? Yeah, actually, I did, I've done quite a bit of Node uh, due to work and uh, been doing Node for uh, a little over four years. I do like Node uh, as well, just because it's I like the JavaScript uh, development environment. I've tried to do Node in TypeScript, and I find that the wire up portion of it is more work than it's worth. So I'd rather just write straight JavaScript from a no perspective. And from an aggregation uh, standpoint, um, you know, kind of our stack, what we're doing uh, at work is using Node to, to talk to our, our, our Java and .NET layers and doing some aggregation to serve our Angular front ends. So it's super great at that, very, very fast. It's great at serving mobile front ends. Um, and it's nice to be able to share the Angular development experience and the Node development experience just because it's all JavaScript. By aggregation, you mean something that our listeners may not know. I mean, at, at one level, it's sort of the so-called reverse proxy idea that the client is calling to your node backend, which then makes the calls out to the other servers. But it goes beyond just being a, you know, a bounce off the wall kind of thing. Your notion of aggregation does something quite different. And um, maybe you can talk about that. 
Yeah. So, you know, in, in line of business apps, um, you've got a lot of existing services in the back. The challenge with existing services, you don't have either the money to change them or you don't have the knowledge to change them. Right. So you've got, uh, and I might say a bad word, you've got a lot of soap services in the, on the back end, um, that you need to connect to. So putting something like node in the back is, being able to talk to these XML services, SOAP services, and even RESTful services that are sending back very, very large payloads, right? We're talking about megs of data and using Node to chunk through that and reduce the payload and deliver only what you need to the front end, being an Angular app or even a mobile app, is a big benefit. It's what Node does best, what JavaScript does best is string parsing, right? So getting back JSON or XML data and say they only need first, last, and an address out of some large, you know, megs and megs of data to send across the pipe. It's a big benefit being able to, to parse multiple endpoints, put it into something I can return and send it back. And we're not that saying that they, that they did it wrong. We're, uh, you know, like it wasn't necessarily wrong to be using Super. It wasn't wrong to deliver the big payloads because they were delivering those, you know, from server to server on that side of the wire. They were meeting different needs. It's just that the server to server communications and this, those requirements are different than what the client is asking for. And we really shouldn't expect the same API to be able to serve both consumers well. And that's what you're doing in there, right? You're sort of reshaping it the requests so that they and the responses so that they suit the long distance client customer. Use a real example here, Shane. Let's make up something like uh, you're going out to make an order for widgets, right? So in the old model, if they did an order for widgets and they had a massive payload, they were doing that because they're bringing it back to an app that's like a server based web server, right? So it's service right. communication. I mean, how would you remodel that for what you're doing now? Well, the let's put it in a little different perspective. Let's say we've got a large order database that's, let's say it's a vendor product that we've, we've bought it, you know, something, some big CMS back there. And you have a POS system that sits on a, on a hard desktop. Typically you send back those very large payloads because we have the benefit of that front end POS system to be able to chunk through that data. Now what we're doing is using node on the server to take that large payload and maybe use it for paging maybe doing looking up specific orders that are maybe stored in a cache or something like that on the node server or a Redis server, something like that. So we're in, think of node as in like a air traffic controller almost to get the data, just what we need for a specific view instead of sending all of that data down to the web, the, the web browser itself to be able to chunk through it uh, and increase the, increase the response time that you wouldn't necessarily get if you send it all down at one chunk. And you also talked about aggregation, which I think, yeah, I mean, that's actually the way you introduced it. We just talked about how to shrink a payload from an API that delivered too much. But another one of those things that I thought you did, uh, it's a very interesting technique, is a client, you know, the client says, I need an X. And you know that in order to satisfy X, it has to hit three different servers on the back end, three different services to sort of pull together everything that's really needed for X. And you can just take that single request from the client, go make on the server, make all those different calls, get their front to their different APIs, get that stuff back, filter out the stuff they don't need, smush together the stuff that they do need and come up with the next payload. That's kind of one of the features of it, right? Yeah, that's and that's a perfect example because the uh, the, the kind of the beauty of the of Node is that 
uh, I can send off that request being at single threaded all the way down to the low level. It is multi-threaded, so I can spawn off these multiple async requests and say, go hit my CMS, go hit my customer database, go hit you know a file server somewhere off in the distance, bring back those three things, put them all together into a, um, a, a mismatch and, and create the smaller objects of those three together and then bring down just what I need. And that's, that's a big benefit for me without having to wait a, make a client wait for all that, make those either um, simultaneous calls or, you know, in, in sync calls one after the other uh, to put it together. So why don't you just tell those three backend servers to rewrite themselves so that they give you the X directly? <laughs> what if you don't know if you can, <laughs> you don't have the money to do that. <laughs> that's I have the money. I might have the money um, and knowledge to make that one API and develop that one API. But if it's a vendor product on the back end, or if it's a mainframe, so we've got some large AS400 that you don't have this, the knowledge, but it has an API that I can hit. That's great. That API might be select star from table, right? And one of the other downsides too, right, is if you have a client that's hitting that, and a client doesn't have to be a browser, it could be another web server or another server. If yeah. that server is already talking to that API, if you modify that API, you now have to go update every client who's talking to it too, right? Yeah, exactly. Because more often than not, when you're talking about big enterprise, you've got more than, especially with mainframes or large backend CMS type systems, you've got more than one client hitting it. And I guarantee it's more than five in most cases on these large enterprises. Yeah. And that's one thing large enterprises don't have an appetite for. It's uh, if you're going to change your code, that's one thing, but don't be breaking something that's already working in production. So don't be touching my stuff. Yeah. So that, that kind of thing, it's very coupled, right? And uh, the architecture you're talking about this using node as an aggregation layer in the middle or a web API facade, that's more of an indirection. And, uh, it makes it easier for you to modify and move forward. Yeah, it also insulates me from change. Uh, so if I've got a reservation system or if I've got a CMS in the back that is degrading or we need a new a replacement, it allows me as a business to replace that backend system. And then I've only got to make the node API change to hit the new system. And it insulates my Angular app from uh, that change itself. So I don't have to go change the Angular app and change the API and change the 15 layers that sit in between my Angular app and the back end. I just change my Node app uh, itself because it just talks to one interface. I just have to change the connectors to the new CMS. And I don't think this is just about old stuff too. You know, there's just been this whole move to microservices in which people have been trying to devise lots of little services, self-contained services on the back end. And that's great if you can afford the kind of chattiness to go hit them all up. But it's tough to write a client that's going to make 20 calls to be able to satisfy a current need. And again, if you use that node server to aggregate things for you and you have control over it, you can um, you can live in a world of microservices and still deliver a semantically viable single request from the client and give them the response they need. Yeah. So, so it's not just about overcoming uh, legacy. I, th- I think it fits into the new world of microservices. No, I would agree there for sure. Um, and and some the the architecture of of microservices is the joke is kind of like SOA done right, but it's the the one service does one thing correctly. They you know, do one thing and do one thing right. And then if I just have that node service, and that node service is more than just a proxy like we've talked about. A lot of people, will, a lot of architects will say, well, it's just a proxy. It's just a pass-through. Uh, it can be a lot more than that. Because if I have a bunch of microservices in the back, I may have a customer microservice. I may have a product, you know, a product microservice that subsequently talks to three or four other microservices, Right. 
if I have the one entry point that does a job and it can scale because node scales very well by putting those in containers or some sort of a service um, scaling in AWS or Azure or what have you, it allows me to just rewrite that one layer and be able to service the front end and insulate the front end from any change. So kind of bringing this back to the Angular 2 side of things, you had mentioned something earlier about HTTP and your experience with it. Uh, and you also mentioned, um, we were talking a little bit about uh, how to get the data. We've talked a little bit on the show about how we can use promises with HTTP library, or we can use uh, RxJS with observables with it. What's right. been your experience? What have you used, and kind of how has that been for you? I initially started, so going back to the hack night, observables weren't in. I think we were still at promises then. Uh, and I've had some uh, the, the promises experience with Node using uh, libraries like Bluebird, so I initially started with promises. I've then since switched over to observables. It's kind of out of the box now. I like observables for a couple of reasons. I've used reactive extensions in .NET being my background, so I understand kind of the model. Secondly, uh, I like the retry model that exists in observables. So I can retry to get the data. So it allows me to, to do that. Uh, I, I kind of like that model. And I find that the code for me is just more familiar uh, and it's, I think, again, trying to, to type it a little bit, it's just kind of comes off the fingers a little easier than the promises for whatever reason. Maybe it's the familiarity from, from the .NET uh, world. So I, I happen to like the, the observables. I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, within uh, Angular 2. Yeah, so many people are shocked to learn that Microsoft came up with uh, our reactive extensions first. Because <laughs> that's just like, everybody thinks, oh, you know, Microsoft couldn't have come up with that. Well, sorry, folks. Can you tell a little bit of history about that word? Well, maybe Shane, you have a little bit of history behind it. I actually don't know the history other than I, I was mistaken because I thought it was started in back in Silverlight. I, I think it was more of the Silverlight and WPF worlds where I thought I started using that. Maybe it was a little later than that in the yeah, Windows world. Right. Those observables were actually slightly different. Uh, but yeah, the Rx.net stuff was, uh, I don't remember when it came out, but it's been a long time. Uh, it's been out for quite a bit. Um, I mean, Rx, I mean, the whole reactive extensions kind of thing, if you go to the, what is it, reactivex.io website, they've got all the different languages up there. It's not like Rx is a brand new concept by any means, right? It's been around for a while. And it's been in different languages in, or longer than others, too. I'm not even actually sure how long it's been out in JavaScript. Are you, Joe? No, you know, it got really a bunch of notoriety and popularity in the past, what, one year, 18 months, maybe yeah. two years. But, but I don't, I think it's got to be a little bit older than that, at least. Like anything, though, right? Once it becomes popular, people are like, wow, it was just invented. And, uh-huh. you know, right. like I'm looking at the reactive website here and I put the note, uh, the link in the show notes. There's Java, JavaScript, C Sharp, Scala, Closure, C, Ruby, Python, Groovy, JRuby, Kotlin, and Swift. So, I mean, there's many flavors of Rx that are out there, and it's been out for quite a bit, but I honestly don't know where it actually originated from. I just know that Rx.net, it's been around uh, back when I had hair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't that long ago. It was just right before he started being on the show. (laughs) It goes back at least to 2012, and... For people who know Link, it was... L-I-Q, right? L-I-N-Q, Link? Yeah. 
it, it was a realization that you could come up with a language for a way of looking at events and streams of events over time that modeled exactly the way you looked at looking at arrays or things like that. And Link had become very successful in the .NET world, and the people behind it had this other realization and started to develop essentially what was Link for events, and that's what Reactive Extensions became. Yeah, I started using the Reactive Extensions when I was doing Windows Phone development, so that's like whenever Windows Phone 7... Oh, you were the guy who did that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's funny, I was just looking at an old blog entry from like four years ago, and I... I saw like I was doing Windows development back, Windows Phone development back then. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a long time ago. Yeah, I was an uh, evangelist for Windows Phone way back when, so I'm, I'm laughing at myself. Yeah, Silverlight looks like Silverlight Five and Windows Phone Seven One is when Reactive Extensions came out. So however long ago that was, but yeah, it was a Microsoft thing. But now into the open source world. Well, and and the current library that was just well, what's known as Reactive Four, is maintained by a, a guy who either. He's currently still at Microsoft, certainly was, Matt Pawasaki. And now it's uh, RX5, which he's actually still in, has a hand in, is now being developed independently by people who have no Microsoft connection. But it does have a pedigree, just given some props where they're due. <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, Observables is kind of my preferred over the, the promise. And if I'm not incorrect, I'm pretty sure that the HTTP default return in Angular 2 now returns an observable that you can just call map on, right, um, to get the return. Right. It's an observable first. You have to decide that you want to convert it into a promise. Right. So observables win. <laughs> well, cool, Shane, if you had one tip you could tell people who are kind of jumping into Angular 2 or considering going to Angular 2 who've never used Angular 1 before, because uh, that's kind of where you came from, what would you, what would yeah. you tell them? I would say uh, definitely look at TypeScript. I mean, if, um, I think that takes a lot of the uh, challenges away from um, the nervousness, if you will, of getting into Angular 2. Learn TypeScript and then run through the getting started and Tor Hero stuff on the documentation. I think that that's like, okay, I get it now on how to put a quick application together. I think uh, that was, okay, I, I got it. And then just, you know, try it from that point. I think it's very comfortable. I find that with those two things, going through those two things, you'll find that the framework kind of falls away. You're not thinking you're doing Angular in the classic sense. All right. Well, uh, anything else before we talk about picks? I just want everybody to know that Shane's famous uh, nickname is Beardy, just so everybody understands that. (laughs) That's just what... That's what John calls me when he's in a funky mood. <laughs> Either that or what was your other nickname from that waitress, uh, Shane? Hostile Shane. Hostile Shane, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for the new framework, Beardy.js, to come out. Uh, I'm going to go take oh, that right now. probably already taken, man. I'm going to go Google that. <laughs> Beardy.js, that's my pick. All right, well, let's do some picks. Joe, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I could do that. My first pick is going to be uh, something that I haven't seen and isn't even out yet. But I am so confident that it's going to be awesome and amazing that I'm going to pick it anyway. And I'm going to stake. I am terrified. I am absolutely (laughs) quaking over here. What are you going to do to it, Joe? I'm going to stake Ward Bell's reputation on it. If it sucks, then Ward sucks. 
and that's <laughs> that's a given. So, that's how so. much I am confident about this. And that is John Papa's new Angular 2 course on Pluralsight. Should be out by the time this goes live. Hopefully, if not within a week or two. But John Papa wrote a course on, it's called uh, Angular 2 First Look, right, John? Yes, yes. And I have given him some little bit of feedback and tiny bit of help here and there and talked at length with him about it. And I know that it's going to be an awesome course on Angular 2. So I'm very excited for that course to come out. And I hope that everybody who wants an introduction to Angular 2 goes and checks it out because it's going to be great. So that's going to be my first pick. My second pick is going to be not uh, ng-conf itself, but something conference-related. We recently chose talks for ng-conf, and one of the things that I noticed was that even though we had a decent number of women in tech submit talks, that we needed more technical talks submitted by women in tech. So if you are a woman in tech, and for any reason you feel scared at all to submit a talk to a conference, do not. Avoid that feeling and instead just put yourself out there and submit a talk and especially a technical talk, not a soft skills talk, even though we do need soft skills talks and people should submit those to conferences. We also need technical talks done by people of all backgrounds. So that's going to be my second and final pick. All right, Ward, what are your picks? No, hold, hold on one second. I'm sorry. The reason I was laughing is I was for sure you were going to say something that's not out yet. It's going to be awesome. Star Wars 8. I thought that's where you were going. I was so prepared for that. So yeah. For that. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pick that too. I was cringing. Tell me that's not coming out soon. Uh, what, two years, John? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. But Star Wars Rogue One is coming out when, John? You got to. When the is next that? Star Wars 8 comes out December of 2017. Okay. Rogue, Rogue, Rogue One, One comes out. out. I think that an asteroid might strike the Earth first, and that would be a good thing. Rogue One comes out in December of this year, the end of this year. So yeah. I'm going to pick that. I'm just going to I'm going to pick Rogue One while I'm at it. <laughs> I was not done with picks. One more pick. Rogue One. That's my pick. Joe. Joe wins. <laughs> All right, Ward. What are your picks? Well, in that on that one, I've been looking up uh, buyabunker.com, where you can have a bunker installed in your own backyard. And I was thinking that would be where I would retreat when Star Wars 8 came out. Buy a bunker. But if I can't afford that, and you probably can't afford it either, uh, I'm going to pick something that's going to really freak Joe out. He's going to be shocked. Uh-huh. And that is that I'm recommending Cycle.js, the videos, to go watch that. Now, not because I believe a word of it. Uh, <laughs> you have to back that up. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, CycleJS is uh, is a, a, a framework and really a collection of ideas about how you can turn everything into one function. I'll just that's a teaser, but it's uh, it's React. It uses Rx. It says that you should be able to model your entire application as a as a function of streams of observables in and out. And I recommend it for three reasons. One, it's really well executed. Set of egghead videos, really well executed. And the storytelling is really good. Secondly, uh, as a thought experiment, I think it's a great way to get a, a, a handle on this way of thinking that's going on that's behind this view of how applications can be constructed. And the third reason is that 
he uses uh, RX well, he's using RX, not RxJS, but he uses RX in ways that are purposeful. You know, it's very easy to encounter this stuff and just have a grab bag of methods thrown at you and wonder how to sift through them. But here, at least you see the operators, the observable operators appearing with a purpose. And you can sort of say, okay, I see why I would do that and what that, what that operator is actually contributing. And so it's actually a pretty good way to learn observable. Uh, so for all three reasons... Not because I think you actually should build your application that way, but because this is such a, a great learning exercise, I highly recommend CycleJS. All right. Joe, what are your picks? Or we already, already did, did Joe's picks. John, what are your picks? <laughs> Wait a second. Don't skip me over. <laughs> no, that's exactly, I forgot even existed. <laughs> I'm going to pick Star Wars 7, Star Wars 8, Star Wars Rogue One, and everything else that Ward detests. All right, John, what are your picks? I've so had a I'm going to say, sorry. Yeah, it's been one of those uh, one of those days here. So I'm going to pick a play-by-play that I did with Shane. Actually, Shane was the star of that play-by-play, and I forget what we actually titled this thing. It's up on a tool site. ASP.NET Core 1 on NEOS. Yes, ASP.NET Core 1.0 on NEOS with uh, Shane Boyer. It's up on Plural site. And it's been pretty popular. It's uh, less than two hours long, and it's basically Shane sitting there and uh, showing me how to build an ASP.NET Core app uh, for a web application. And it's pretty cool. He's doing the whole thing on a Mac, uh, which should blow a lot of people away who've uh, been used to using .NET only on Windows. And my second pick is a non-coding pick, but more a, uh, a group called Girls Who Code. So recently I've been more and more uh, involved with trying to do things with uh, groups who don't, um, who don't always get a lot of support for getting into the coding industry. So some of them are children, like Hour of Code. We've talked about that before. And Girls Who Code is a wonderful organization that will help uh, young girls get into uh, coding. And they do these immersive programs in summer uh, with companies who like to sponsor them to do these wonderful coding exercises. And they also do a lot of uh, things with conferences. So something I've taken an interest in, and I've got three young daughters, and one of them especially is very into coding. And if you uh, are looking to volunteer and kind of help out a group, definitely check out Girls Who Code. All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is binkies or pacifiers. Um, my wife took all the kids except one. You can guess which one that is. And uh, that's why I'm able to get this show done without a whole lot of extra noise. So uh, I'm, holding, you, I'm holding my three-month-old right now. Are you also going to pick uh, cough syrup and whiskey? No, that's next week. I think I'm going <laughs> to merge that with my pick and we'll have binkies in bunkers. <laughs> well, that'll keep you quiet, Ward. <laughs> <laughs> all righty uh i also want to pick the city of amsterdam i was out there for ngnl last week and it was it was a lot of fun uh great conference and the city is just a kind of a cool place to walk around it's an interesting mix of canals and roads which anyway i, I really enjoyed being there so so yeah so i'm going to pick amsterdam as well and uh finally two of the book series that i've kind of been reading as they come out came out with new books within the last month the first one is the Iron Druid Chronicles, came out with Staked, uh, which is the latest in that series. Um, it's about a druid, big surprise, and he has to deal with people or gods from all kinds of different pantheons uh, who are basically fueled by the belief that we have in them or people who have had in them in the past. So anyway, really interesting, uh, fun story. That's uh, just like this show. Yeah. Uh, the second uh, series is the Reckoner series by Brandon Sanderson. 
He just came out with Calamity, which is, I think, the last book in that series. Haven't gotten around to starting it yet, but I'm sure it's great. So uh, those are my picks. It's been great so far, Chuck. Awesome. Uh, Shane, what are your picks? I want to mention something real quick about Hour of Code. They they tweeted something today that I thought was really cool. Uh, Chicago is the first city to make computer science a core subject. So I thought that was a pretty important thing. So I wanted to mention that. My first pick is a YouTube kind of webcast uh, from the guys at Wrangle.io. They created uh, the Batarangle component tool, but they did a, um, a webcast called Thinking in Angular 2.0. It's about an hour long, and they go through the whole getting started. They talk about decorators, benefits of uh, TypeScript, routing, the CLI, dependency injection, testing. So that was really good. Um, I watched that. They go through the whole forms portion too, which I think is missed in a lot of talks about about Angular two. So that was really really quality. My second pick is uh, a little toy that we got in the house that um, I think my kids are starting to like, and that's uh, the Amazon Echo. Uh, which, if anybody's had that in the house, it's a it's a fun thing to have and, uh, just to get people uh, to integrate with home automation and adding things to shopping lists and. I don't know. It's just a fun toy. I know um, another guest, Dan Walleen's got just got one in his house as well, and he's having fun with that. So uh, I want to pick that. Yeah, I gave That's one to it. my wife for her birthday yesterday. So we're still figuring it out. Yeah, it's cool. All right. Well, uh, Shane, if people want to follow up with what you've been up to or follow you on Twitter, where do they go? Uh, on Twitter, I'm SPBoyer, S P B O Y E R. And uh, you can always reach out to me there or. Uh, my blog is uh, tattoocoder.com. All right. Well, thank you for coming. We'll wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 